0: Uh, I think you, you all know that this name does not match this person, right? So this is, um, this is a wonderful little tool to begin this, this session, which is that Jennifer Orm Zavaleta from EPA, she's the science advisor. In July, I invited her to be part of this panel. And EPA um, told me last week that, no, she was not going to be it after, you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter, right? You can guess how many times I asked them and her in the meantime. Anyway, um, they said they would find somebody else for this panel from the current administration at EPA until two days ago when they said, oh, no, we can't provide anybody. So at that point, Jeff Holmsted agreed to be on this panel, and I am so grateful to him, And I. It gives me an opportunity to say one of the things I like the most about Jeff Holmstead, and there are lots of things, but this is one of the things I like the most now about I'm him. Now I'm blushing. <laughs> when I was covering um, the EPA and environment in general for the Los Angeles Times and then NPR during the Bush administration when he was a, a super big fish at the, at the Environmental Protection Agency, I could get him on the phone all the time to talk to me about why he was doing some kind of rule or why he wanted to change new source review, Eric, or why he wanted to do a lot of the other things that he was doing. And I might have agreed or disagreed with what he was doing, but he would always get on the phone to talk about it. And I can't tell you how many times I thought about you when I was covering the Obama administration, and nobody would get on the phone to talk to me. or um, And they wouldn't even have press conferences, so you could ask them questions. They had to do everything um, through the telephone. You know, we'll have a conference call and, you know, choose who which reporter to call on and which reporter not to call on. And we all know this current administration is not that um, transparent, despite the popularity of that word. So anyway, um, that will come up. That was like, uh, what is that called, foreshadowing, transparent, anyway, transparency. So anyway, um, Thank you very much for coming and for being with us. And um, so uh, unfortunately, and this kind of happened already during lunch, um, I'm going to ask you to not stand in for the current administration because, of course, you can't, but help us understand a little bit better what they mean by some of the things that they are telling us. And um, so I wonder... um, uh, one of the things I wanted to start with is just this idea of what is happening with science in the Trump administration. What role does science play in decision making? Just this this week, we um, we uh, read about how um, the um, the, uh, the science advisor um, wasn't part of a process. The process to create what's known as the transparency rule or the secret science rule that came out in a reporting. The, um, the science advisor um, office is in fact now um, slated for being dissolved and um, lots of other examples of how science scientists may or may not have had a role in decision making by this administration. One r- reporting I did um, one of my deep dives was about the the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and it, this is Interior, so it's not your expertise. But in that case, um, they, did, the um, Solicitor's Office of the Interior Department, completely rewrote the interpretation of that law, and they never talked to anybody at the Migratory Bird Treaty, um, migratory, uh, migratory bird um, office of the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, so they just weren't involved at all in that major re- revamping. So what I'm trying to understand, and what I hope you can help us understand, is what role does science play in this administration when it's making these big decisions about rollbacks that you just talked about around anything else?
1: Well, I thought I might get a chance to hear my two co-panelists before I was called upon to talk about it. Oh, anything, yeah, so
0: I'll I just tell you why I'm picking on Jeff first, is that he has to go to the airport, so.
1: <laughs> but not for a little while. Oh. I, so I, oftentimes, like everything else in Washington, science is politicized, right? Uh, and I think y- you may or may not believe that, but I can tell you absolutely that it's that it's true. Um, I think that that it's fair that this administration um, has not followed the same approach on a number of science issues. Uh, I think there's no question about that, but. But I can tell you where, where science is relevant. Um, they they have no way around it, and they will. The, the And and so you still have career scientists at EPA. You have career scientists elsewhere. But but sometimes. So for example, I'm not an expert in the Migratory Bird Treaty. But my understanding is that the decision that was made was based entirely on sort of legal reasons, right? The, and and the whole idea was can you be prosecuted for criminally under the migratory bird treaty if you didn't have an intent to harm a bird? So if something – if one of your pieces of equipment, if you'd taken all reasonable steps and nevertheless a migratory bird was, was harmed by your equipment, could you still be held criminally liable? And and that wasn't a science issue. That was a legal policy issue. And under most laws, unless you have intent to commit a violation, you can't be held criminally liable. So, so that's a, an area where I think critics of the administration – will say, oh, that was done unscientifically, but, but it really had it wasn't a scientific question from their perspective. Um I I I you know I, I don't I don't defend everything the in the administration has done, but I, I do think that there are times when um In support of something that an administration wants to do, they claim that it's either compelled by the science, and the science is not always quite so clear-cut as that. So I I, I do think it's correct, especially on some of the big policy issues, the big public policy issues. Um, They are not as engaged in sort of the scientific effort. Um, But when it comes down to the things that ultimately are going to matter in terms of the regulatory structure uh, and the way our laws work – there's, there are scientific inquiry that are built into those, and they're going to have to justify those decisions. And so I'll give you one example of that. There was certainly um, a lot of people who, would, who, who really believed that as a policy matter, the Obama ozone standard should be scrapped, and, and we should go back to the prior ozone standard. And again, without getting into all the details, many of you understand that and ultimately th- they determined that they couldn't justify that scientifically so they announced after you know a year of inquiry that that they that they were not going to try to change that standard and so um on those sorts of decisions d- yeah so, so 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 i think ultimately um you, you you have science that informs a lot of these things, even though it's not the kind of high-profile things that we may have seen sometimes in the past.
0: I'm sorry that I, um, I think it was because of the way the panelists were coming in when we already had started the panel that I didn't fully introduce everybody. I, I think you know who Jeff Homestead is because you were probably just at lunch where he was introduced. If anybody doesn't, raise your hand. And next to him is Joel Clement, and uh, I wanted to thank Joel for <coughs> taking the trip to come and be here with us. Um, Joel was the top um, climate change official at the uh, Interior Department until um, his, t- his life took an interesting turn, which um, I think he'll probably tell you a little bit about it, um, very soon, and Eric Lipton, who's getting his technology together, is the other panelist, and he'll tell us more about what he wants to talk about later. But now let's get back to Joel. And um, Joel, I um, uh, so Joel um, currently um, is a fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists and will be a fellow at Harvard's um, Kennedy School um, uh, coming up in like three days. And um, so we're very glad that he took time to come and be at our panel. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about – what you saw when you were at Interior about how um, this current administration approaches science.
2: Oh, good. Okay, thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> and first of all, thank you, uh, Elizabeth, and to all the journalists in the audience. As someone who's relatively recently been thrust into the spotlight, I can't say enough about the reporters I've been talking to every week for over a year Uh, really fantastic, smart, professional people, so thanks very much for that level of engagement and understanding of the issues. So I don't know if you get thanks very often, but uh, it's been a (laughs) whirlwind year for me, and I appreciate that. (coughs) Um, And I I, I do think it's important to to focus on some of the high-level things that Jeff and others are are likely to talk about, but but the one thing I think that uh, we don't talk enough about in terms of how they treated science and the career ranks right out of the gates. Uh, you know, it's not usually a smoking gun. I know as journalists, that's what you want to find, and it, and it needs to be something that uh, will have direct impacts and, and hopefully have, uh, relate to a law or a regulation that is well known to a lot of people. But uh, the thing that I noticed right out of the gate after the transition uh, was the absolute lack of engagement between these new political appointees and the career ranks of the department. And not just the scientists, but all career ranks. Really, it was radio silence from from the secretary's hallway, and, and it, I was only there for, I guess, six months before I was uh, reassigned, and then just a couple more months before I quit. But uh, it, that trend continued, and it continues to this day. I'm in close touch with with the folks there, and uh, it's it's a remarkable thing. To you know, in my view, the the career ranks are the heart and soul of the federal enterprise. They're the reason these agencies haven't actually sputtered to a stop because of all the, you know, because they're under attack. Uh, the agencies are quite literally under attack uh, by the political appointees right now, and the career ranks are keeping things going. And, and to be shunted aside so dramatically uh, was a very new, I think, a, a new phenomenon, even though there have been some dramatic tra- transitions in the past uh, between administrations. Uh, this was, I think, a little startling. So I can certainly go on and on about that. But and my
0: in particular, point. since we're talking about science in the administration, what impact did that have on the administration's um, use of science in decision-making?
2: So it, it was no longer uh, assumed that science would be used uh, in decision-making. I think we can talk about some of the science practices that are baked into the process, but frankly... Uh, they're sidestepping that uh, in, in a lot of sort of subtle ways, uh, quite frequently, um, and they're and it's leading to more court cases and process fouls. And so that's you know I think they've lost 25 times in court already uh, and counting. And a lot of that is because they're not checking in with the with the analytical staff or the science staff that is generally uh, keeping folks uh, on on the uh, with the program and uh, and making sure that the decisions relate to uh, the mandate from Congress, whether it's a statute or a regulation or whatever. Uh, so that has been, I think, a big challenge. And, and in other ways, of course, there's censorship and there's, there, there's all kinds of kind of uh, uh, suppression taking place. But in terms of decision making, uh, they're not checking in with career staff or science staff and therefore leading to some big mistakes. And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that because they don't show any uh, tendency uh, to change that, and and I'll, I can talk about the the union of concerned scientists survey uh, later in the panel if you like, but yeah, the findings were very similar and related to that. Yeah, for yeah the you know what S- I
0: we are what I'd for. like to actually just have Joel speak very briefly on. Um. On his, because you probably don't all know his story. Like, what? Why? Oh. Why did you end up leaving the Interior Department?
2: Oh, okay, sure. I uh, so I, in in my role running the policy office at Interior, I, I was uh, the lead uh, climate uh, policy guy, but also working really closely with uh, the Alaska natives in the Arctic that are facing these direct uh, impacts of climate change, as some of you know and some of you have reported on, and and uh, uh, the. Uh, the imperative at Interior to address the impacts of climate change is very strong, and so I spoke very publicly about that on a lot of occasions, and including uh, at the U.N. In, in June of 2017. And a week later, uh, I was reassigned to the office that collects and disperses uh, royalty checks from the oil and gas and mining industry. So uh, it was uh, clearly a retaliatory reassignment. Um, I don't think anybody questioned that, and it and – I think more importantly set back our work trying to address the uh, the needs of these alaska natives in the arctic and and because it, it clearly it appeared to us to be uh, in response to the work i'd been doing up there as related to climate change so uh that led to uh a couple weeks of soul searching and finding an attorney and and uh, ultimately at the month a month later i submitted a, a whistleblower complaint to the office of special counsel that's still under investigation and I uh, also took the extra step of going pretty public about it in the Washington Post with an op-ed, and and that sort of kicked off a series of events. Um, They got good counsel at some point because they didn't fire me right away, but uh, I I quit a few months later after giving it a shot uh, as an auditor uh, in the (laughs) oil and gas receipts uh, section of Honor. Um, But uh, So, yeah, Yeah. that, that was the event, and that's how things transpired for me. Thanks. Um, So these are, this is just some context of a document that
3: I pulled from the uh, University of uh, Southern California, U.S., UC, University of California, San Francisco. Um, They have an archive of tobacco documents that were obtained through litigation. And what's so fascinating to look at this is that this was was, um, efforts, um, this is actually having to do with PCBs, but somehow it ended up in the tobacco database, but, this is in the 1990s when they're saying that, that this was a win- this was a Steve Malloy, okay, who's doing this. Steve Malloy was selling his services to um, uh, the General Electric and other companies that had done PCB uh, contamination, and the idea was to discredit the science. Um, and, uh, and 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 then let me just go to the next one here and see tab down. Um, uh, and and the, the parallels between um, secret data. Um, uh, between what's going on now, um, and that this is all, this is all, um, where, where they're, they're talking about the need to make the data public, and otherwise to undermine the data, and it's just fascinating to see that that's exactly the same argument that they're making now, and they're just reprising the tobacco industry argument that they had that they tried were trying to undermine secondhand smoke with, um, and and it's, it's it's as if they substituted you know, uh, the, what is it, the seven cities? Six cities. Six Six cities, sorry. Uh, And and the epidemiological research that's been used to try to challenge the organophosphates. Um, And organophosphates is a class of pesticides, and that's really what, what I'm gonna just quickly spend a couple minutes talking about. Um, crop life uh, at the end of the Obama administration, came in and basically said that the, the epidemiological studies do not meet the well-defined data quality standards. And so they should no longer be considered in, in the decisions that, that the EPA is making. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's essentially the same argument that the tobacco industry was using in the 90s. Um, and so they filed this petition at the end of the Obama administration shortly after Trump won. Um, and that, you know, that, that they should stop using the, the, the epidemiological um, research in organophosphates, pesticides. And, and, and what, what happened was, um, uh, you know, these are notes from um, um, a, a, an EPA um, official who was essentially ordered by Ryan Jackson, the chief of staff at the EPA, um, to to reverse the position that she had taken on whether or not to ban chlorpyrifos um, and these were her handwritten notes where she you know was in the process of talking to Dow about possibly agreeing to phase out um, chlorpyrifos um, and instead um, Ryan felt he was be- Ryan that's Ryan Jackson was forced into a box by the petition and um, and that they were then going to move to to just reject a petition to ban um uh, and that's what that's what um, Pruitt did in in March of 2017. But the thing that that I, that um, uh, that is so interesting is that so many of these decisions um, are being overseen by people who have just left the industry sectors. Um, that they that they um, they were the regulated parties and now are the, they are the regulators. Um, this is a, a an, an opinion from the general counsel's office at the EPA, effectively telling um, Nancy Beck. That even though she just left the American Chemistry Council, um, she, uh, you know, she, in absent of an impartiality determination from the general counsel's office, you cannot participate in any matters um, relative to the ACC. Um, but we're going to let you do that anyway. Um, um, therefore, you know, you may participate in rulemaking, even if the rulemaking may affect members of your former employer. And 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 like, how could they possibly do that? You know, I mean, that they gave. The woman who was from the chemistry council that was fighting on the determination the, the of whether these toxic chemicals were toxic and was the one that was, was testifying on behalf of the chemistry industry now is in charge of determining whether or not the Tosca chemicals, rep, what represents toxicity, and they give her a letter of impartiality so she can participate in exactly the same matters that she had just intervened with the industry months before she went to the administration. It's like that's, that's when science becomes compromised, when you have this mixing um, and it's happening all over the place in, in the Trump administration.
0: Thanks, Eric. And I, um, one of the things that I'm very curious about in all of this is, is the words and the way both sides in this debate use the same words. And one of the words that I get foreshadowed was um, transparency and the um, uh, the. The rule that I think Eric's talking about is is called transparency. What is it? Eric? Transparency
3: in science, I guess. Is yeah. That, uh-huh. No, wait. That's not is the that official not name. I okay. keep
0: forgetting these real n- names. Anyway, and I noticed actually, and on the when I was looking on the internet this morning, that um, Jeff has transparency in one of his titles, um, or your. What am I talking about? You know that you're 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 your, the group, the working group <coughs> that you're part of for the Federalist Society. Um, oh,
1: Regulatory Transparency Project. Yeah, Yeah, the
0: Regulatory Transparency Project. You're the head of the working group on energy and environment or something like right, that. Right. So um, can you tell me what does transparency mean for that group? And, um, and, how, and, and why is it that people are talking about this word transparency so much now and seem to mean opposite things?
1: Tell me how you think it means opposite things.
0: Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, first, but, I would so like I, you to know. Well, I, I'll like tell
1: you, sort of. I'll tell you the the, the the whole idea behind this project is to help people understand the the regulatory process and how it works, and how oftentimes it it, it leads to uh, outcomes that are are not ideal for society. Um, and the whole idea is, if 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 so there's a way, tra- yeah,
0: like letting people um, go, um, both regular people and companies understand what is the regulatory process
1: well and yeah and i so that's the idea but i but i always kind of bristle a little bit when people talk about it's really hard for members of the general public to understand these issues and i'm not being condescending but few people have the 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 time or the interest to devote into and, and that's that's where you have representatives like the Union of Concerned Scientists who, who they, they have their perspective and they believe that they represent the public interest. You have other interests on the other side. But I think it's important for all the people who are involved in that process to have access to to the, to the data and to the type of analysis that support all these things. So I, I think it's really hard I, – I, I think it's hard to argue against transparency um, I think the real battle is over. You know what what that, what what that means because it means different things to different people. And, and, and I do hope we have a chance at some point to talk about the so-called secret science proposal. That's what I was yeah, trying to introduce, yeah. and, no, I would, and I, I would and be I,
0: happy for you to, 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 to kick that off, Jeff, if you would like to.
1: Maybe we should let, let, help let if I yeah, put please, a little context into it. Yeah, please do it. that. So
0: let me. Um, So maybe some of you, all of you, who watched the hearing this week on the Senate Subcommittee on Transparency, on the Transparency Rule? We'll call it the Transparency Rule. Anyway, so... I think it's
1: called the Secret
2: Science Rule, popularly. (laughs) Popularly, it's called the Secret Science Rule, but the... We're changing it to Censored Science Rule.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So everybody... We could could have a vote on what we should call it. Anyway, so um, I thought it was just so interesting to see... um, the, the different opinions on the same rule um, in that hearing. You have one um, esteemed scientist from the University of Massachusetts talking about how this rule is an excellent, um, excellent is the word he used, um, uh, improvement of the regulatory process uh, of, of the way that, that science is used in regulation. And then you have um, Russ Holt from the um, AAAS saying that, in fact, um, it's not that at all, and all it, all it is is a way to try to reduce regulations. It's a, um, and that's really what it's for, and it will harm people, and it will keep science, a lot of science that's important, um, out of the process. And so what do you think? Does it keep science that's important out of the process, or does it, it in, instead make the process more transparent? S-
1: so <laughs> it depends entirely on, on, on what they do when they finalize the rule. And, and just t- to put some context around this, th- this has become hugely controversial because um, if you look at, at really almost all of the EPA air regulations that have been done over the last two decades, um, most of the benefits, regardless of whether you're regulating hazardous air pollutants or mercury or diesel emissions or, I mean, you, you name it, whenever you reduce almost any kind of air emission, you you also reduce what are called fine particles or PM2.5. And, you know, NOx transforms photochemically to form a fine particle and SO2 transforms and VOC. So almost no matter what you're regulating, you also have the impact of reducing fine particles. Um, if you look at OMB's analysis of all of the costs and all of the benefits of all federal regulation over the last twenty years—it's something like ninety percent of all the benefits, literally, come from reducing fine fine particles. Um, and again, to, to put it in context, some of you may we but talk. That sounds
2: good.
1: No, it is good. No, no, it yes. is. It is. And I, and and by the way, I, I agree wholeheartedly that that should be our primary focus of especially in the air area, is reducing fine particles. So I absolutely agree with that. I'm telling you why it's so controversial. So the, the, the studies that are used to, to, to understand the benefits of reducing PM2.5, one is the Harvard Six City study. There's another American Cancer Society study. And, um, a- and the data behind those studies is not publicly available and there's been complaints among many people in the regulated co- community that those data are not being interpreted interpreted properly and and again these I'm not an epidemiologist but you know these are huge data sets exactly how you analyze them exactly how you run your models or those all those things are are all important um, and so that's been a that's been a, a huge controversy over those studies because that data is not publicly available and that really animates a lot of this um, the, the so called secret science bills and others that people want to have access to that data um, i I think it I think that going forward it would be a good thing to have transparency and and by the way I think Many scientific journals d- think the same thing. So there are now, and, and Eric, you know this better than I do. There are a number of scientific journals that now say you cannot publish an article in our journal unless the data that you're using and the type of analysis, the models, the computer code that you're using to to look at this data, unless those are publicly available, so that people can reproduce your studies. And there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of of concern about the reproducibility let me, let me of a lot of studies
3: interrupt Jeff for a second. Yeah. I mean, I think that the problem with i think in principle that the notion of transparency in science is something that everyone would embrace. Um, the problem is that the word means different things depending upon who you who 's defining it and the The thing that I observe that the industry likes to do when they they get possession of data is that they use that that possession of the data to try to undermine the conclusions and to eliminate the study. That would likely lead to a greater regulation, and so now, while it and so then you would say, okay, well, fine. Well, if it can't stand up, then it doesn't deserve to be considered as part of the regulatory decision. But the, but what what I what I see in so many regulatory decisions, and what Nancy Beck did was so good at doing before she went into the agency, was was pushing aside studies that that that, that threatened regulation, and and so I think that much of what this is about is 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 the industry seeking to try to find a way to push to the side. Studies that that, that threaten their products. Um, well,
1: of course that's what. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And so, the, but, so but, in, but the,
3: in the name of transparency, what they're yeah. So and no, so yes. Uh, Again, yeah.
1: but you're saying pr- as a principle, of the matter. It's hard to it's hard to argue it against is transparency. Against it. it is okay. So my question is, so what are you saying? That the, that, that, that therefore, the, that the data shouldn't be available. That right, the data so shouldn't be available. So right, have, it's a hard so, argument to make. So, right, yes. and I think it's also the incorrect argument. Right. I, I think it's a mistake to say studies that have been done in the past that where the data cannot be made publicly available, of course we need to continue to use those studies. Those are high-quality studies, especially the Harvard Six Cities and the ACS studies. They've been reviewed by other independent people. But, but I think going forward, Having that where it's feasible as it as as the as a as an objective is a good thing, and Who I think pays? it's entirely on. Who pays for that? It, it depends entirely on on what the it depends entirely on what the context is, and the and look at and the issues are really difficult because one of the things that i understand from researchers is unless you have possession of the data yourself so that you can do your own analysis you can publish papers you have very little incentive to, to gather the data so there needs to be a way to, that the data can be gathered that researchers continue to have to, to have access but, but but and we can talk about you know data People pay for data all in, in many different ways, but how can you seriously argue that we ought, to, we ought not to make this data available publicly? I, and I, I
0: don't think actually that's what anybody's arguing. but I think No, no, but I,
1: many people are arguing that, right? And so, so I think Eric's example is, so there are industries that are going to try to use this data to show that, that whatever the issue is, it's not such a big problem. That's their right. They should be able to do that. There are people on the other side who can use that same data who, who, who will also make arguments, and, and and I think that's a healthy thing to have that debate over those data. So I think ideally – But I think, I think, I think ideally can
0: argue that that's the reason that this rule is really existing. This rule is not existing – to make things transparent the reason the proposal is out there is to keep studies out of regulatory so process.
1: so that's there's no doubt that that's what Scott Pruitt had in mind when he when he sent and his and isn't it what over. the congressmen also
0: have in mind yeah, when they yeah, when they pr- yeah, support uh, pr- the honest act yeah
1: probably but that doesn't mean the concept is flawed, right? I mean, so wh- wh- I what? Have the to the, what the motivations?
3: The, yeah. the, it really the depends. It depends on something. the execution. I mean, in the right hands, it could be a, it could be a fine idea conceptually, but if you use it as a as a as a tool to stop, you know, public health progress, then and in the wrong hands, it could be a very dangerous tool.
1: Okay, but but but. but but we can agree, at least, that it depends entirely on the execution. It depends on, on how it's handled, how the data is used. But how can you say that we ought not to well, make this data it, publicly it, except available? Except
3: if it creates requirements that are, in fact, unattainable by certain studies that just cannot, it therefore it removes them. No, no, but I agree.
1: I, so I agree completely. But yes. to me, that that has to do with the implementation and there and the are execution. certain
3: epidemiological studies that, under the way that it's currently crafted, would simply be removed from that's consideration. That's
1: true. And, but but and I and I think that's a problem, and I don't think that's the way the way the rule will ultimately come out. Mm-hmm. I'd
0: like that's, to yeah. make a bit of a turn and maybe broaden the talk out a little bit more into these issues of science in the in the. Trump administration and how it's being used. And I wonder, Joel, if you could talk to us a little bit about what the Union of Concerned Scientists found in its survey of of all, um, is, this is appropriate, right? You suggested that. Yeah, you could, yeah no, I'm yeah, happy
2: to yeah. do that. I'm
0: sorry. I, I, see, I see this look it's on a your big face. Big pivot like. to
2: me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a big pivot. A lot <laughs> of things I could have been saying right there. Oh,
0: would you rather? Uh, no, you no, you no.
2: I'm sorry. Ahead. I think we're all you know ready for. for the I just pivot. felt
0: like it was time yeah, to uh, talk about I mean, something else and not I have again. the whole session about that. I
2: I, well, I will just quickly. One note rule that I
0: think is probably never going to happen. I don't know. That's just my guess. Right.
2: I will just say that. there things
0: happening, right? What's that? Go ahead. Excuse me for interrupting. That's okay.
2: I, I, you mentioned uh, Rush Holt, and I, you know, Rush Holt knows what this is because his successor chairing that science committee is Lamar Alexander, who's the one that cooked this whole thing up in the first place, right? And He didn't cook it up for, to advance American health and safety. I don't think anyone is, is uh, going to suffer that illusion. So it's a, it is a matter of implata- implementation, absolutely, but I think we, we need to be honest about where this comes from uh, and what that means. And, uh, and uh, you know we could probably talk endlessly about it, um, but yeah. So UCS did—they sent a survey to 61,000 federal scientists, uh, which is a lot. They finally got a, a good uh, a good number of folks. Uh, this survey, uh, the n wasn't huge. Uh, the response was very telling. I think they got just under 5,000 responses, which, as a percentage of those surveyed, is quite low. But the survey was just asking, all right, what what are you up against in your jobs? It asked very straightforward questions. Uh, have you experienced censorship? Have, have you experienced political interference in your work and so on? Uh, they asked a lot of questions. Uh, and the results were not uniform across all agencies. Um, but those agencies, I think, that are sort of the usual suspects in terms of being targeted, like EPA and, and uh, Fish and Wildlife, uh, Park Service and Energy uh, did uh, show some pretty dramatic uh, results from the survey. Um, political interference in their work was, I think, probably the number one concern that these scientists were expressing. Uh, some gave examples and had some vignettes in there. Um, I wasn't working on the survey, so I don't have all that handy. There's a whole slideshow, and you can go on the UCS website to see the results and the report. Uh, but. Uh, they were anonymous. They remained so. It was, uh, it was done through a third party and, and so on. They were very protected. Um, but nonetheless, it's a difficult thing to uh, to do as a career scientist. You are not wanting to do anything right now that might uh, raise a red flag of any kind. So clearly they are a little nervous about answering in the first place. Um, But the results did demonstrate uh, some real concerns about political interference and and a lot of talk about uh, understaffing and under budget. You know, the usual stuff you might see, uh, but far beyond what previous surveys had shown. Uh, It's not just that the budgets are getting squeezed. That's always a complaint from anyone you survey in the federal government. Uh, But uh, people are leaving and not being – they're they're not rehiring behind them, so people are doing the job of two or three people now and – I think as as a federal scientist, that's particularly vexing because you know you're never really going to get uh, the work done that you need to to move the ball forward. You're just holding uh, just holding the line. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other results uh, in addition to that, but the the uh, the censorship issue came up a lot, and I I don't uh, I don't separate self censorship from censorship because it's something about a climate of censorship that, that takes place in an agency. Well I was a DOI. Uh, even before I left, it was already clear that you don't raise—I uh, did, obviously—but you don't raise climate change uh, as an issue. You, you, you're careful about how you talk about endangered species and so on. And so, now at Interior, for example, if you're, if you're, uh, let's say USGS, you're the Geological Survey, and you've you've got a grant for fifty thousand dollars or more, it needs to go to the Deputy Secretary's office first, and that means. <clears throat> that means you're not going to mention climate change because you know that it won't get through. So I've spoken directly to some scientists that have said uh, that uh, review process up in the DEPSEC's office lasted so long, my thing never went through, and I had to fire a, a postdoc that I, that, I, that I normally would keep on this study for another couple of years. So it's already compromised. Just the process alone has already compromised the implementation of the science mandates at some of the bureaus. So the survey started to show some of this stuff that we've been already seeing uh, anecdotally, and I think it's helpful to have that information there so you can check the website and, and get much better in, info than I can give you as a, you know, part-time senior fellow there. I, mean, I could just offer could a few you a lot more
3: info. kind of examples that as a reporter experiencing some of the same things you're talking about, but, and I'm amazed by how talkative people are during the Trump administration. These are career people are much more um, and now this is um, confidentially, um, but the the number of career people that are willing to meet with me at coffee shops off hours on weekends um, and uh, and so some of the like like different points that I see like for example early in the um, Trump administration, one of the first things that the EPA did was to cancel a data call for oil and gas um, methane emissions they, they, uh, they were going they were requiring all of the oil and gas companies. To pr- to provide data on methane emissions from all of their facilities, uh, they're both drilling and production facilities in the United States, and and by by canceling the data call, you're eliminating the data behind the rule, um, and that, that's brilliant because you know if you don't have the data, you can't you can't begin the process of of, of the regulation, um, and so that was one thing, and then the, the way that that the, the EPA was going to in defining what toxic chemicals were. Um, the staff had come up with a consensus opinion as to how to do um, risk evaluation and prioritization two key processes in, in, involved in tosca the new tosca that they just Congress had just passed and they they had agreement on the language the, the scientists the career people the, the, and and then they were forced in the last minute um, to rewrite how you define um, risk evaluation and prioritization um, and those people came and talked to me and, and uh, uh, and you know, and then in, 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 so it's just I'm seeing a lot of of, of of people who have worked across you know many administrations who just feel that their that their opinions are, are don't really matter, and there's this disconnect now between the politicals and the staff that is much more intense than what I saw during the, the second Bush administration, which I covered, not the first, um, than the right now. And, it, and, and I think it's it's harmful to the whole bureaucratic system. I, I know, Jeff, if you've, do you sense a, a, a disconnect between the, the, the staff and the pro- politicals more than, than perhaps existed in other administrations?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and again, EPA is the agency I know the most about. I, I don't know that much about Interior I think um, I, I think if you were to, to go back now or six months from now, that you would see there's a different approach. Um, right. Just just because you.
3: No, Wheeler has changed. Things. No, he and he and, has. And, I,
1: and so and you know I'm yeah. especially um, aware of what's going on in the EPA our Office, and that is the biggest office at EPA, and that d- does most of the, the the regulations. And I think for the first eight months they felt completely, I mean, people didn't know what to do. I mean, they didn't have direction. The political leadership wasn't terribly interested in talking to them. But then finally you got, again, my friend Bill Wareham, who came in who who actually understood the value that the staff brought, um, could engage in the conversations, had enough confidence in the issues. And so I think that organization went from being I'm not going to say dysfunctional, but kind of non-functioning. They weren't doing a whole lot to finally getting people in. But it, it, it varies an awful lot depending on the agency <laughs> and who the political leadership is. And and I do think that there were some some unfortunate choices early on, es- especially. Uh, so I, I, as I say, do I'm not here. I'm not here to defend everything the Trump administration is is doing.
0: When you say unfortunate choices, though, do you mean in individuals? Yes. Anybody you want to name? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to open the um, the panel up to questions. And you need to be a reporter for me to let you um, ask a question. So if you're not a reporter, please don't raise your hand. Okay? Um, well, I think it's a and of SEJ. I'm not sure it's a reporter, but it's a member of SEJ. Oh, I'm sorry. It's you need to be a member of SEJ.
4: A, 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 a journalist member. Of a society.
0: journalist member of this. And, and, it, and, it and, that, and that. there is an exception be for people on the panel. They're allowed to ask <laughs> anybody questions. That's my rule. That's not s <laughs> rule. Would so anyway, and before question. you ask a question, please let us know who you are and who you represent if you represent somebody besides yourself. Uh, and I'm calling on you. Hi. Um, my name is i with KPR, the MPR
4: station in Salt Lake City. And I guess this is for everyone, but... Um, Joel, what is it like being part of the deep state? Yeah. <laughs> most, is most of the deep state, scientists. And also, could you talk about, a little bit about your FOIA lawsuit? Because I think that's a really ironic
0: twist on the whole transparency discussion. Uh, okay, um, I'm, I'm sorry, jo- Oh, go ahead, Joel. Thank you. Uh, yes,
2: yeah. I've been paying attention. The qu- yeah. I have to repeat the question to the yeah, <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Uh, the question was, how does it feel being part of the deep state? What are my thoughts on the deep state? <coughs> and then to please comment on my FOIA lawsuit. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, uh, yeah so I uh, I am very proud of my public service and being part of the, of the career ranks of the civil service, but I do think the deep state uh, concept is is certainly an overblown myth in my experience and, and it's sort of fascinating to see people latch on uh, to that term. I'm not part of the uh, national security enterprise, so <laughs> who knows, but uh, <laughs> certainly at Interior, there's no such thing. Uh, but I but I am very proud of what I did there, and, and maybe you can tell by how I speak about the people that are still there doing it. Uh, I feel strongly about that role. You know, some of these folks are there. Each day, they're having to decide whether today's the day I raise my hand and say, that's not right, or do I keep my head down so that I can kind of live to do this work another day, which is also very important. So... Uh, they're in a tough spot. Um, as relates to the FOIA lawsuit, you know, one of the tricky things, I, I think the Trump administration set a record months ago for non-transparency, ironically, given the earlier topic, in that they were they were not providing more documents. I know it's a double negative. They were not providing more documents than any admission in administration in history, and they were only about a year and a half in. Uh, so, uh, it seems as though that tide has turned a little bit. I, I think they're starting to do a lot more disclosures early on. Uh, you know, some scrappy reporters and whistleblowers and some NGOs uh, were doing a great job uh, starting to get this stuff. It's it's coming out more and more. Uh, but these, uh, these folks in the FOIA officers, the, the FOIA offices are just wildly understaffed. Uh, hard to say whether that's intentional or not, but uh, they're not providing a lot of documents. So in my case, um, I sued the agency to, to respond. Uh, and that's a, an area of, or uh, well, that's an opportunity that anyone can take. Uh, if they're not responding within, I think it's 40 days or something, uh, you can then sue and say, hey, you're compelled to do this. These are our documents as, as Americans. Uh, so I did that, and, and they got back, uh, we settled. You know, they said, well, all right, we'll get you your stuff. It'll take us four years, but we'll get you your stuff.
0: (laughs) Uh,
2: So it's a little remarkable uh, that that is not an isolated case. I I know a lot of others, uh, you see a pulse of disclosures come out, which are very helpful. I mean, we we learned from those that Zinke lied when he said shrinking Bears Ears was not about oil and gas. We learned that his press secretary had referred to a journalist with an expletive. You know, we, we've, we've just been learning, obviously, all the Pruitt stuff that came out. Um, so it's important to have this law. It's been worth its weight in gold, but it is hobbled right now by process, uh, these FOIA offices. If, if something were to change in the House in November, I would guess that part of the oversight response might be to require agencies to beef up their FOIA offices, or should, because uh, we need to start seeing some of these documents.
1: Can, can I just point yes, out yes, that that that's not unique to this administration. Every administration is understaffed yeah. on the FOIA. You speak up? But only I, 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 so taking years to get a FOIA response is not unique to this administration. It's it's it, uh, it it's so I, the response times may be worse. I think there's more FOIA requests okay. too. Um, but it's not as though FOIA is suddenly you know FOIA delay is suddenly an issue with the Trump administration. That's been as long as I've been in Washington getting. And 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 it's it's unrealistic to think they can give you everything you want in 20 days when people are asking for. No, that that that's that's but, fair but and that's it, but, it, but it does need to be fixed.
2: It needs to get better. But some, I I think the the reason there are so many FOIA requests is that there's so little transparency up front that we sort of become accustomed to, and some of that is the learning curve I think of the folks that have come in because they many of them have no experience in in the federal process. But I'm not going to let them off the hook that easy. <laughs>
4: Uh, Rebecca Lieber with Mother Jones. Um, this is probably a question for Jeff, and maybe Eric a little bit too. Um, on, um, I, I feel like you've said a few times, and in the main room, that there has been a shift under Wheeler um, that, and implying that there's the EP is opening up with listening to career staff and experts. Um, could you explain more concretely what shift you've been seeing? Wheeler versus Pruitt um, and, and that openness, because I, I feel
1: like it's, it's been talked more vaguely. So, so I, I know, for example, that that Andy has been around to all the EPA regions and held...
0: Yeah, uh, just to remind you, the microphone does not amplify, so...
1: So, so A- A- Andy Wheeler has been to visit all the EPA regions where he's held meetings with... And not just general with everybody there, but with individual offices to try to understand what the issues are. Um, he's he he always includes career staff in all of the decision meetings, which is something that 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 Pruitt never did. And by the way, Lisa Jackson didn't do that for a long time either. A lot of times, administrations come in with some distrust of the career folks, but someone like Andy Wheeler has been around D.C. long enough to understand. The expertise that you have from EPA staffers. So, I I think if you ask anybody at EPA who is a career person, they will say there really is a huge difference. I may not agree with everything that that Andy decides, but you know, I had a chance to go in and brief him, and we talked about these issues, and he's been open about sort of his. So, I I do know that just in terms of including EPA staff, that there's been much, much more of that under Andy, And, and and I don't think that's for show. I think it's because he truly does appreciate the expertise that's there.
0: Do you think that science makes a bigger impact on his decisions than on Pruitt's decisions? Yes. Yeah. Can you and
1: I, an example of well, that? Uh, but I, And I also know for example the, the head of the office Bill Wareham, he, he had not spent a lot of time working on climate change issues and so when he came in he actually asked for a series of briefings and people from the office of Research and Development and the Air Office have done sort of a series of briefings on various issues related to to, to climate change.
3: I think one example would be the uh, the glider truck um, the matter, where on Pruitt's last day, he um, gave he sort of finalized this loophole for the glider truck industry, and and then it was overturned in the court, uh, or it was, just, it was it was um, it was it um, was stayed in the court. And then Wheeler reversed the position that actually Wareham had signed the memo. Um, Wheeler reversed that, and so and and that was an example to me of like, well, as we were talking about during the lunch, of like, where's the constituency? It was sort of hard to understand why was um, Pruitt putting the agency out on a limb for a very narrow, uh, you know, industry sector of uh, of companies that retrofit old engines. And the other, the other example I would, I would give, and I mean, you you cover this as much as I do, but I mean, the, now Wheeler, the press shop through Wheeler has been in, in the last week. They went after the New York Times because of, of a, a million billion mistake, um, which is a big deal when you call something a billion, and in fact, it was a million. And then they went after the AP over a story about radiation. But it was interesting to see in both of those cases, it was a very fact based, um, uh, you know, attack on the reporters, and it wasn't. And, and it, was, it was over mistakes and, and, and corrections. It was not the kind of thing that, that um, um, what's his name, the guy that left, uh, the press shop guy that, that left. Jahan. The, Jahan. Jahan. And, you know, the kind of crazy political, you know, um, stuff that Jahan was doing. I mean, atmospherically, that is very different. I mean, if you want to argue over a substance and argue over factual mistakes and push out press releases to criticize reporters because of factual mistakes, okay. You know, to some extent, it's your right to do that. Um, and I think you know culturally. I feel like there's a that, that they are at least they are at least trying to be more science based. I feel like that. I feel that. I have this impression. And I don't. I don't. I sort of. I sort of wonder if the if the how much of the science thing the, the transparency if that will be shifted more than. Oh, I otherwise. think. It, I think it'll be. Shifted. Do you know? I mean, yeah. do you know? No, I. I don't. But uh-huh. uh, but
1: I, I know enough about Andy and about the people. I mean, that was an embarrassment to a lot of people, even the people at OIRA who. I mean, th- they were, you know, that's why they insisted that it go out as an advance notice of proposed moocing, mm-hmm. rather than a proposal, because it wasn't really fully baked. Uh. So I, I think that that I think that that policy will be m- much more nuanced and and, and much more, and, and I, so I, I have confidence, given the people who are there now and their and their approach to things, that what ultimately comes out, if anything. I mean, they, they may just change internal procedures, they may not do a big, you know, that was part of the thing about Pruitt is he, he wanted the press release, he wanted the, the attention to the announcement, and, and Andy's much more concerned sort of about the substance and getting things right.
0: Just the part two of that
4: question is um, if you see a shift in policy, because um, you talked about the culture internally, but have you seen this play out, or you just mentioned that it might be more internal.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think policies. It, it's really we're at a, a different stage now, and you probably participated in rulemakings too. It, I mean, it takes it takes a long time for these things to germinate and go through the process. And Pruitt did very little of that. He got lots of headlines. He made lots of announcements, but but other than some of these procedural things that were overturned in court, um, you know, we we just didn't see much in the way of real regulatory development. And I don't think he was terribly interested in that. But, uh, but I think I know Andy, I, I'm sorry, Andy is someone I've known. Administrator Wheeler is is much more actually interested in the underlying policy issues.
0: Uh, okay. Um, woman with the red scarf, would you please introduce yourself? Hi. My name is Emily
4: Gertz. Um, I publish a newsletter called Deep Regulation Nation. And I'll, I'll take the heat off. You can in a second. Um, I'm just curious, like, Joel, if you can say anything to the work to overturn the Sage-Browse uh, deal, which, I mean, was so laboriously negotiated between all parties concerned, and, if it, and seems, it seems like it would have been easier for, for the industry to just go along with what they negotiated, because now it's going to end up back in court almost death. I mean, what drove, what, what's, what drives this, this administration's appointees to make reversals of that sort when it doesn't even seem they'll help the people that they're, you know, the industries that they seem to be a little more interested in than conservation?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting one. And, I you know, I, I, rule number one for the new administration is to erase the previous administration. Sorry, the question was about the sage-grouse plans. And why on earth uh, would they reverse something that was so laboriously, laboriously, and bipartisanly arrived at uh, during the Obama administration? Uh, given that reversing it is likely to lead to uh, some problems in court, uh, and, and I, I was just noting there uh, that um, you know the priority uh, for for Ryan Zinke is to reverse whatever happened in the previous administration, good or bad, and I think. Uh, just be, and, and that's there are various reasons for that. Some political, some less so. But uh, in this case, uh, it's a major stumble uh, and a big mistake, probably, uh, for uh, his own political constituency. Those those sage grouse plans. For those of you who don't know, the western sage grouse is teetering uh, on the edge and uh, probably should be listed by now as a threatened species. But. Listing it will have such an impact, uh, they say, on Western economies uh, that everyone stepped up to see if there are things that could be done to keep it off that list. Um, And in this case, that involved Western governors, it involved uh, Western uh, state uh, delegations to Congress, it involved uh, local constituencies and a lot of federal agencies and others. Uh, And they sat down and ground out a very, very difficult and and in my view, even, even so, somewhat inadequate uh, set of plans that would hopefully uh, preserve the habitat necessary to preserve the sage-grouse. And, and uh, because it was such a bipartisan process, I mean, that was obviously very intentional, that if you want to have something persist in the West in particular with the coming and going of, of different governors, it needs to be uh, bipartisan. And, and uh, that was seen as a great big success, uh, except probably for the scientists who know the most about sage-grouse. Uh, it was seen as a success, certainly politically, and, and I think reversing those or revisiting those plans is going to cause such a headache that I think it's going to cost uh, Ryan Zinke not only a lot of political capital, um, but a lot of support on, on uh, elsewhere in his uh, interior agency agenda. So uh, I think that was an unfortunate move on his part for a lot of reasons, yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting because I, I did some reporting when I was still at High Country News about the sage grouse and what was happening behind the scenes, and I thought it was, and maybe, I don't know if you you are ever involved in lease sales, maybe you've <coughs> seen some of this from from the industry's perspective, but I was stunned to see the change in the, um, the way the BLM was um, producing documents about the lease sales um, that affected the sage grouse, because the, the ones during the Obama administration were chock full of all this science and analysis, and, I mean, they were endless, like, could you bear? You couldn't really re- read these things They were so long, and the the ones from the current administration just weren't. And the result of it was basically there was just a lot more um, uh, parcels being offered on um, on grounds that were important for sage grouse. Just basically none during the Obama administration and tons during the, the Trump a- administration. I was going to try to pull up my data, but I, d- I don't have it right in front of me. And w- But what was so interesting to me was just the role that science was playing in all of that, like tons and tons of science, and then really we don't even have to talk about the science. And I don't know really what to make of that, except that was something that I saw when I was it doing my
3: reporting. The administration it frequently is actually um, outsourcing the science um, to you know, like with the cafe standards, they 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 turned to some of the industry people to find the science that they wanted to justify the shift that they made in the cafe standards. In the glider rule, they cited a study in the Federal Register. They cited a study that had been funded by Fitzgerald as the scientific underpinnings as to why this this provision should be justified. I mean, and and to to the folks that work at the agency who do this science to see them then turning to essentially you know outsourcing the the scientific you know underpinnings of, of, of regulatory you know choices is it must be really disheartening um
0: you know what? I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna feel free to say no if you if you don't want <laughs> to talk about this, Francesca. But I just with you sitting right there, I just cannot a- not ask you this question. Coming off of what Eric <coughs> said, and does everybody know Francesca Griffo, who's sitting right here in front of us? She's the um, scientific integrity officer at the EPA, and was a fascinating participant in a panel I listened in on at, at eleven o'clock. And um, what what I'm wondering about is the question of scientific integrity. Integrity And how if you have um, a rulemaking, and in this case um, you're using a piece of science which is suspect for a rulemaking like that, is that a violation of scientific integrity? Or is it okay to, to, because it's rulemaking, that you can do whatever you want because you can take politics into consideration when you're doing rulemaking? So maybe you have a a view of that as well, Jeff. (coughs)
5: do you... I'm trying to talk this way so that everybody
0: can hear me. Um, oh, I don't know how to um, making, do this for the recording. Right, I'll, I'll yeah. um, Woolmaking, as you know, is a long process.
5: It has many, many steps, it has lots of pieces to it, it has you know many, many things that tell you how exactly you have to do it. And I think what's interesting about the the honest act or transparency act or whatever we're calling is that you know there were nearly 600,000 comments that went into the public record on that, and about 3,000 unique comments, which is high for unique comments. But in the process of rulemaking, the key things are really the transparency of it, that these things go into the docket, because if they're in the docket, they can be looked at. After that, it depends on the statute. I mean, I think that's what it's very easy to forget, is that the work of EPA is not, and I said this earlier, science-based. It's not. I mean it's a rare thing for any you know statute to require a science based rule. The Endangered Species Act listing and delisting is one of the tiny little examples where science rules and the rest rules, right? But most of these <laughs> things if you look at FIFRA, if you look at Tosca, if you look at RICRA, if you look at clean air, clean water, I mean all of them, really and truly the science is what informs the decision, it's not what makes the decision. In all of those statutes, you can, as a person in charge at the agency, and you can back me up on this, I think, you can say, yes, this is what the science says, but the statute allows me to consider this and this and this. And by considering this and this and this, I'm not going to go with what the science says. I'm going to go with something else. And I guess that's why it always surprises me when people manipulate the science, because They really don't have to. I mean, they can make the decisions that they want to make, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, this is all, you know, a good thing for democracy. It's a good thing for the agencies that we have all these different processes in place. But unfortunately, um, you know, I think that a lot of people are not aware of how the statutes are written. And we sometimes jump to conclusions that aren't necessarily, you know, founded. Now that being the case, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that go on that, you know, not, are not okay. Or I'd be out of business, and I'm actually very busy.
0: <laughs> so, is it okay to, to put a science uh, to use as justification for a rule? A scientific study that's actually not very well, not good science, basically. That's can, the point. Can,
1: right? can, I, can I make? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do need to leave. Okay. Uh, oh, thank you. Um, the discipline of this process I- I- is, is, I think, extremely important. And I would point out on that study, it hasn't yet been used to justify a rule. It's been used to justify a proposal. And there will be comments on on not, on not only the <laughs> policy issues and the legal issues, but the science issues. And if EPA relies on a on, – if it makes its decision based on a, on a, on a scientific study – that the rulemaking comments shows is not a valid study then that's a grounds for over overturning it and so you know uh, legally. legally and 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 thank you for saying what i should have said and that is people a, a lot of people who don't are not in our business just assume that you know epa's out there coming up with proposals that are to advance you know air pollution or to reduce greenhouse gases and and what they're actually doing is implementing very specific statutory provisions, and those provisions oftentimes are have been defined or interpreted by courts. There's court cases, and and so EPA always has to act, and and Interior too, to some extent, you know, within the confines of the statutory language, prior regulatory history, what the courts have said, and and oftentimes that process is long and laborious, but ultimately, I think it it leads to to, by and large, good results. And there are some important things where EPA can only look at the science, like the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. It stand right, right. Which, right. But but really drives a lot of regulatory activity. The, one last thing I will say, if I can, on my, on my way out. Um, apropos to the question about the deep state. So I, I went to EPA as a political appointee in 2001, at the very beginning of 2001. and And I do have to say I was surprised... At how much I enjoyed my experience there, um, and especially at the senior levels, uh, the, many of the people are just pretty remarkable. I mean, there are people who uh, who are who are civil servants in the very best sense of the word, and and they're um, they're committed to um, to carrying out the mission of the agency, but but also they understand that. You know, elections do matter and that they, you know, they work for an administration and they try to make sure that that administration stays within its lanes. Uh, uh, But I – and and one example, one thing I do like to point out just very quickly is there was a career staffer um, at EPA who who was very effective, terrific civil servant – and he really was the person who was primarily responsible for the match rule, for the Clean Power Plan. It was his group. They put all of those things together. And when the, when the, when the new administration came in, he, you know, he was sort of sidelined and ignored um, until y- you had someone who came in as a political appointee who knew sort of how things work. And so and who are you talking about? I'm talking about Bill Wareham who came in. Uh, Well, I I don't want to necessarily... Well, his name is Peter Saragotis. And he had been sort of the primary actor in the Clean Power Plan and the match rule. And when Bill Wareham came in, he promoted Peter Saragotis to be the head of the most important office at EPA. And it's because, you know, he trusted that here was a civil servant who was very effective at getting things done, um, you know, who would make sure that things were done properly and and although he had been sort of the lead career staffer for Gina McCarthy on some of the most important things, he, you know, he was recognized as someone who really was a civil servant in the best sense of the word and, and so he's now in the middle of the ace rule. And the proposal to repeal the Clean Power Plan, and, and in either case, he's implementing, you know, decisions that are made by political leadership, and I think that's the way the process is supposed to work. And there are many, many other people at EPA, and I'm sure at Interior, who are, you know, who are the same way, and, and they, their job is to, is to implement decisions that are made by the people who have statutory authority to make those decisions, and if you don't like those people, then you put them out of office. So anyway, Thank you for allowing me to uh, to pontificate a little bit right before I leave. <laughs>
0: Thanks for your input. And I hope <laughs> you'll
1: talk to me about NSR before you write anything. Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you, Jeff. Can I respond
5: real quick? Oh, yes, please. I mean, I just want to say that mostly, but I think what I'm really happy about is that when it doesn't work that way, and sometimes in all the agencies and across them, it doesn't. That's the importance of the scientific integrity policies. And that's the importance of those of us that are, not to toot my own horn, but who are implementing them and are there as a resource and a help to the folks who find themselves in these positions, right or wrong, at least they now have a place to go. They now have someone to talk to. They now have, you know, we have an, an ombudsman function in a way, which I think has been very helpful and important. So I'll leave it at that.
0: And uh, okay, um, Susie, would you ask the next question?
4: deregulatory mindset and kind of what I would consider a dismissal of a lot of scientific knowledge and evidence, um, the extent to which that is seeped into other agencies. So I guess I'm curious, um, in your guys' opinion, what is the extent to which it's seeped into like the FDA or um, the CDC and places like that, and what sorts of stories do you think aren't being covered in those agencies? Did
2: some of that come up in there? Yeah, I, I can reflect on Sorry, the question uh, was, uh, other than the usual suspect agencies or uh, the usual agencies who are who have this uh, problem, what, what are some of the agencies uh, suffering from? Is it a problem elsewhere? Uh, how could we characterize the the uh, transition for other agencies? And is that right, too? So- um, and, and the survey did uh, show a few interesting things. Uh, for example, folks at NOAA seemed okay, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I think uh, we suspected that anyway. There, there hasn't been a, a, the, the same sort of stories, you know, in the beginning of the administration. You had all these stories come out about these sort of s- sort of odd uh, gaffes, like the Department of Energy coming up with a checklist. Who are all your people that work on... Climate change. Let's, let's get some names here, you know, that kind of thing. Of course, you don't do that. But I think there was some uh, lack of understanding that led to that. Uh, even at CDC, you saw that then. But uh, at things have changed a little for some of these agencies, and it sounds like CDC is not suffering a great deal from that, although there may be instances and anecdotes uh, to refer to. Uh, NASA has taken a good turn. I think they, they feel that the administrator there is at least respectful of things like climate change and career staff. Um the other HHS apparently has been uh, the the results from HHS were not great in the survey, so I imagine there are some stories there that we haven't gotten to yet um, trying to think of commerce other than NOAA, nothing really emerged um, energy was mixed as I recall FDA I don't know I mean uh,
3: I could say sort of, ha- having spent. Last year, looking across the administration, I mean, that, I think that uh, energy department. There's a, a, you know, you just have to look at some of their policies relative to suggestions that the federal government should be sort of actively changing the electric grid uh, to support the coal industry. Um, you know, the, the interference there um, is, is quite extreme. Yeah. Uh, I mean, FDA, I think, you know, the, a lot of things that Scott Gottlieb has done, although he came in from the pharmaceutical industry and there's a lot of skepticism about the fact that he came from the industry and, and now he's going to regulate the industry, but he's, in fact, been really aggressive relative to um, the, you know, electronic cigarettes and tobacco uh, in a way that is sort of surprising. Um, and of any person in the administration so far, he's, to some extent to me, been the boldest in, in to willingness to take on um, he hasn't taken on drug pricing, but to some extent, that's not really um, the FDA. The FDA doesn't really. It's more a HHS and, and Medicare and Medicaid that do more about drug pricing. But I mean, he's a person that actually has been willing to to challenge the orthodoxy and in in the parts. Of it. But another example would be that what used to be called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, yeah. um, where they have you know in terms of payday lenders and auto lenders, I mean, radically and. Um, uh, radically shifted um, policies in ways that, that, that are hard to understand. And the Department of Education is another example of, of radical shifts in, in, um, in regulatory policy um, in terms of, uh, um, you know, uh, for-profit colleges uh, and, and policies that are supposed to try to make sure that, they're, that the students that they're educating are actually getting degrees that, that they're putting to use as opposed to just getting debt. So those, those are some other examples of, of, of regulatory shifts. Um, that, are, that are significant, um, and we're we're trying to cover as many of them as we can. Um, but it's just there's so much to write about. It's uh, I chose to focus on Interior and EPA because I thought those are the two agencies where it's happening the fastest and the most consequential. Um, and so that's I ended up spending the last year focusing on that.
2: I I'm sorry, th- I should clarify that that survey went up to federal scientists. So some of these things wouldn't turn up in, in a survey of federal scientists. The things that Eric uh, is mentioning are, are really important, but uh, would be a different group of people.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's true. If, it depends on whether you're asking about science or regulation, like the Com- Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I guess doesn't have that name anymore, and I can't remember its right name now. Anyway, um, that's an example where there's a lot of change as well. I think one of the big... I don't know. I would say that this is this is a um, this is an analysis of what um, Joel was saying about where the problems are striking as far as deregulation. I think it's the, the agencies that have more power as as far as regulation is concerned, and um, that have a big role to play with fossil fuels. That you might notice that there's a trend there. That um, I, I don't know. I mean, I I think so. I mean, NOAA of course does important science, but they don't regulate and. NASA doesn't regulate. Um, EPA regulates, and so does the Department of Interior in so many ways that it have a big impact on the fossil fuel industry. So, at least that's what I. I yeah. Think.
2: Yeah. Correct. So, yeah. That's
0: right. um, I don't think I don't. I. I mean, the, it's doesn't uh, strike me that the Trump administration is anti-science for the heck of it. Like I think that that there is a, a really um, determined. Um, It's where it gets in the way of business. One of the things that I think is the most remarkable thing I know of that's happening in the Trump administration is that as far as I know, the National Climate Assessment is on target to be released in a couple of months, which is like, really? Yeah, I think it's going to be released, in fact, without meddling, as far as I know, unless you guys have something I don't know about. So I think that that says something very strong about Anyway, that what's happening. And I I think Kevin, are you still here? Anyway, I think we're supposed to end. So I don't know if anybody needs to rush someplace. I'm willing to sit and if the panelists are willing to sit and take more questions, but I don't know how how um, serious the time um, so constraints is. There was a membership yeah.
4: Meeting at 30, so you want to meet your board and find out what issues are going on and vote.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. And so if you want to do that, um, you're welcome to leave, and nobody will be insulted. Um, anybody else have a question? They're dying to ask before. Okay, yes, you've had your hand up. I'm sorry.
4: I'm just curious. Oh, um, introduce yourself. I'm um, Emily Hodgkins. I'm a reporter with the Indianapolis Star, and I the environment. Oh, my just call Yes, I did. Um, uh, I'm just wondering... Um, or, you guys could also use, since you have worked inside a place that gets FOIA, what kinds of things you request that maybe aren't as obvious to you know, the average person? What kinds of things have been really helpful in your reporting? Um, or just any kind of like tips and tricks that you can rely on to be good FOIA
0: groups? FOIA tricks. You wanna
2: well, I'll, I'll just say that my my attorney and I have, have tried to target, because it's mostly emails and calendars, right? I mean, that's that's generally what can be most helpful. But there are memos and other things you can get. It's just they so often don't provide those. But it, it's often the names that you include. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily want any and all communications from so-and-so, but you want to make sure that, that the name of a broad range of people that might be involved is somewhere in your FOIA request, because you'll get more hits. And often you have people like Deputy Secretary David Bernhardt at Interior who puts nothing in, in writing, ever. So if you can have some of the other people in his office on the list and in the FOIA request, they're more likely to slip up. That certainly happens with the communication staff at Interior, too. Uh, they didn't figure that out for a few months, which was interesting, the things you'd get back. So uh, the old hands know not to put things in writing, Talk about non-transparency and probably not legal, but that's the way it goes. So that's my one tip, I would say. My
0: um, my FOIA tip is um, if anybody's involved who works for a public institution that's not a federal institution, they probably also are under public records laws. They will return your documents if it's a state um, public, like a... The University of Indiana, or something like that. They're going to—they're under public records laws, and they will return the documents far faster than the federal government will, in my experience. So that's one thing to look for. Is there somebody else I can query? And um,
3: yeah, I agree with specificity in terms of if you, when you're crafting a FOIA, the more you can sort of put your head into, (laughs) if I were the FOIA officer, how would I do this query to actually get the documents that you want. Because there is a person that's going to have to do that. And so if you can, you, can, you, you know, find the, the domain names from the companies that you think might be communicating and say use, you know, if you create the equation that that FOIA officer should then use, um, and the more specific, the, the faster your response will be. Um, and, and it's certainly true, I agree, state agencies and also um, independent federal agencies are also much faster um, then like State Department DoD or um, EPA interior are like some of the slowest producers of FOIAs, but like Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the SEC or the FCC or the you know um, all of those F, you know all of those um, acronymed um, independent agencies they are i don 't know they 're much faster and now i don 't know if if that would, if covering environmental stuff would get you into any of those spaces, probably not but, Fra- but
5: Francesca might have an idea as well yeah. I I would just say, if you can figure out who the person is at the agency, call them and negotiate it. I mean, the hardest thing on us are these giant fishing expeditions that then we have to put our staff on for months. And then there's 6,000 pages that we have to redact. And then I have to check those 6,000 pages of redactions. And so if you wonder why it takes a long time, it's because there are people that we can legitimately protect and we want to do that. And, and we don't want to stop being deliberative in writing. But that's essentially what, you know, I mean, I love FOIA. Don't get me wrong. Don't for one minute think I don't think FOIA is a fabulous piece of legislation. But if we can be, you know, the more targeted, as you said, the more specific. And, you know, right now I I have an NGO that I've been trying to reach for six months, and they don't return my calls to say, come on, help me. I, I don't really want to produce 10,000 pages that you then have to spend your time and, and limited resources going through, and they haven't even returned my call.
3: Yeah, I, I constantly reach out to FOIA officers and, and negotiate the FOIA with them to structure it so that it's a more reasonable. It, and you also build a relationship with them, and uh, it's it, and they're a public servant. I mean, it's a it's a really hard job to have to collect all that stuff to go through, redact it. Um, so, yeah, the more interactive you are and willing to negotiate, the the
2: faster and the better you're responsible. Yeah, but my attorney was doing the same thing, and, and that relationship can serve you down the road because they're actually facing maybe even more hurdles with the political appointees they need to then get this stuff from. So, uh, you know, they, you can help them with that, too, and you can be the good cop, and that doesn't hurt in your negotiations. But the only other tip is be careful what you wish for because – that's a lot of stuff, and you've got to go through it, or someone's going to go through it, and it can eat up days, so be, be thoughtful about and specific. And
5: check FOIA online first, because it might yeah, be there. Right. Yeah,
2: that's right. <laughs> we
5: get that all the time.
0: I think, I think that was a pretty good last question, nuts and bolts, and if everybody's in agreement, I will say thank you very much. <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much. I really appreciate it.